Alrighty, we are ready to get started today. How's everybody doing out there? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting alongside Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? I am doing well. You are doing well. And how are you doing? I am doing well. Good. So they should be too then. That's three wells. Everyone, I said, hope mm -hmm. they're doing well. You yeah. said you're doing well. I'm doing well. Good. We're all doing well. We want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Focus Compounding Podcast. Um, if you want to get access to our investing website, where people write about in ideas, individuals, and professionals from all over the world, which is pretty cool. Go to focuscompounding.com and be sure to sign up using the podcast promo code, which is podcast. And that will take $10 off your subscription price indefinitely, as long as you stay a member. So today we're going to be talking about value trading. Which is something off the website. Which is something off the website. Up, yeah. Um, shout out to David. I believe yep. that was his name. He mm -hmm. wrote an excellent website. Uh, and the article, yeah. Yeah, yep. the article. And it was about value trading. And he's sort of related the article to Alan Meekum. Mm -hmm. And I think because a lot of people have talked about his investing in the past, how his and his returns, I guess people are attracted to right. sort of how he does things and and um it's been publicly it's public knowledge that a lot of the stocks that he's owned, he's also owned, I guess, a couple more than once probably throughout his career or something like that. Right. right? Yeah. That's sort so of it's percentages and have gone up and down the yep. position size, yeah. Yeah. So value trading, what are your thoughts about it? Right. So this one in the article talks specifically about uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Simpress, mm -hmm. um, so th which are large positions for him and is an example uh, there in the article. Um, uh, so, so what we're defining here is value trading because there was actually some comments about this in the article. Is kind of a difference of what people think about what we mean by trading. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about here is that someone could get additional return in a stock yeah. because of their timing of their purchases and sales mm -hmm. versus something like what I do which doesn't have any trading element to it. It might be speculative, who knows. But if I buy NACO, I buy it once, and then I don't buy more or sell it down. Yeah, you just plop it all in at once and then right. hold it. So yeah. there's basically, basically, you know, as much as the market can take, as long as it's liquid enough for me to do this, I have one entry point and one exit point, and they could be ex one day, um, you know, the days could be separated by three years, five years, but um, I'm in on one day and out on another. And, that, and that's kind of different if you've ever looked at his portfolio. Sometimes he'll own like a percentage of his portfolio in a name or something like that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's a concentrated investor. I think Berkshire is like, what, 20 to 30 percent of his portfolio. Yeah, I think I each of the two big. biggest ones are, are, are a number of very close to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I know they're I know they're big. But why do you think he does that? That's a good question. I, I think probably because he only knows a few stocks really well. Yeah. And so he cycles through those particular ones. Mm hmm. Um, returning to the same names that way um, and probably has a good idea of, of what he can value that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the article isn't just specifically about, about his investments. Yeah. Obviously there, there's other things in there too, but um, it's an interesting point because something like Berkshire, um, you know, it, it, sometimes when I talk about what you'll, the return you'll get in a stock, mm -hmm. I can break it down to a hold return and a trading return. The hold return is what will happen if you own the stock indefinitely and we can do different periods of time we can say okay if you own this for five years 10 15 years you'll basically get what the stock itself is growing its value at whereas your trading return is going to be the closing of some sort of valuation gap and the issue that value investors have we can kind of divide people into value versus quality mm -hmm. quality investors they invest in a company that's compounding its intrinsic value 20 percent a year they might pay too much for it at first but if they own it for decades, eventually their return is going to approach 20% a year. Sure. Value investors might buy something that's worth a dollar for 50 cents. If that value gap closes this year, they make a huge return. Mm -hmm. But if it closes in 10 years, they make a much lower annual return because the company itself isn't compounding at a good rate. Sure. And so it becomes a question of how 
those two numbers add up together. Mm-hmm. And obviously it works best if you have something where you buy into a stock, say Berkshire's compounding at 10% a year. Plus it's cheaper when you buy it than when you sell it. So then you're adding a return on top of that mm-hmm. too, right? But if you just did something where it's selling at two thirds of its value, but that value isn't going up over time, then your return is going to be a lot lower, you know, the longer you hold it as a value investor. Yeah. And I mean, and I guess for Berkshire, do you think like a good trade, and I'm quoting trade in mm-hmm. here, is when Warren Buffett says that I think once it gets under 1.4 times book or in that area, he, right. he'll buy back stock. Sure. I think with it currently, I think it's actually at like 1.34 times book value mm-hmm. currently today. Sure. That's one way to think about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Especially you, if you're like thinking about relative to the market. Berkshire owns a lot of stocks, so there is the potential that... Um, it's a better buy when it's uh, the market is cheap than when the market's expensive, obviously, because you know the individual stocks are also cheaper in their portfolio. Do you think it's tougher because then you're sort of your timing, I guess, certain situations more? It could be tougher. What, so the article talks about basically not selling something to buy, uh, not selling something to hold cash, mm-hmm. but selling some of Berkshire to buy more Simpress, selling you know or or whatever. So really, else. just like cycling it through, right? Yeah. So you have five ideas. One of your ideas gets more expensive than the others sell that one and buy more of the cheap one basically mm-hmm. you know um and i think that that works um if it's what we just described not holding cash but that you have an idea that's cheaper how can i own more of that well i can sell the thing that's more expensive mm-hmm. um but you, not necessarily selling all the way out of a stock either you don't have to necessarily do that yeah and it probably comes down to obviously just knowing the companies in and mm-hmm. out you know and and so you know i guess if a if a business gets to a certain point of cheapness because it's getting you know, pl- pummeled by the market, whatever, just right. destroyed by the market. And you're like, okay, you just, yeah. you understand it more. So we could look at some of the stocks that we've talked about on this podcast. We've mm-hmm. talked about Frost. We've talked about Omnicom. I've given numbers where I've said here is something I think would be a good time to buy it at. Um, so like with Frost, I've said in terms of what their deposits are, price to deposit, uh, pr- the um, deposits per share uh-huh. versus the share price, right? Yeah. Um, with like when o- it equals each other or what? Uh, so like when we wrote it up for the newsletter, the um, deposits per share could have been, well, pretty high. It was not just three times. It might have been four to five times um, the share price. So say the share price was $50. Uh, it was actually less than that, but say it was $50. The, price, the deposits per share might have been closer to 200 Oh, wow. So that gives you an idea of how, yeah. And we gave that calculation for each bank and show which banks were under about three times deposits and things like that. Now, it depends on the bank because in Frost's case, we think each deposit is worth more than it is at other banks because they pay almost nothing for their deposits, whereas mm-hmm. some other banks pay a lot. Um, Omnicom is another one I mentioned uh, price to sales for that one. So we talked about that stock, and I said something like, well, it's $65 a share. would be a really good uh, stock to buy. Mm-hmm. But that isn't a fixed price. It's saying calculate the price to sales ratio. When it's close to one, you should buy the stock. Mm-hmm. When it's over like 1.5, the stock isn't as attractive. Mm-hmm. So the time to buy is when it's between like say one and 1.5 or something. If it's over 1.5, you know, it may only do as well as the market or something like that. So that's a way that you could think of value trading a stock like that. Mm-hmm. If you're comfortable with that stock. Now, if you're not comfortable, then you don't buy that one. We talked about ego. We talked about Tandy. So these are things that if you're comfortable with the business, you could think of as something to buy, but then you also have to think of a price, um, a multiple really. Sure. Like price to sales, or something like that, that you'd be comfortable with. It can't be a, specific stock price mm-hmm. it has to be something that moves. relative to the fundamentals yeah of the so it has to be something that moves like we said berkshire with price to book yeah that could be moving 10 percent a year uh-huh so that's something that o- over 10 years is going to change a lot the price that you're paying in dollar terms why don't you value trade why don't i value trade uh there's a few reasons 
One is risk. So uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but I see risk maybe a little bit differently than some people do. I don't see risk in terms of the amount of money that I have, the percentage of my portfolio invested in something at a particular time in terms of volatility, which mm-hmm. I think is how a lot of people think about it. Sure. So if you buy a stock, it's 20% of your portfolio, but it goes up to 50%, they think, so should I sell some? Because otherwise, half my portfolio's movement each day is going to be determined by this stock's mm-hmm. movement. But what I think of it as is the chance that I have miscalculated in my analysis of the company. That I thought the company was a monopoly and it's really not. Mm -hmm. That I thought the company was cheap and it's really not. That I thought management was good, they're not, all those things. So if you buy more as the stock goes down, you're really taking more and more risk on that same initial idea. Mm -hmm. It's still that one thought and now you're doubling down on that one idea that you had basically. Um, and, and so that's a big reason why I don't do it, to be honest. Um, I've talked about that before. Um, at the same time, I'm also willing to let something keep going up without selling it off. Is that why you you think you're also for equally weighted portfolios instead of? Yeah, it simplifies things that way, sure. I also think that in most studies that I've seen, for most investors, they're not going to get much out of not equally weighting it. Some will actually be better off by equally weighting. Um there are some things where I would be better off if I didn't equally weight it, and I didn't. So so there's some things where I decided to go bigger into a stock, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. But it's so rare. I maybe do that once every three or four years. So, you know. Um, and, and so I focus more on, in the beginning, figuring out the stock and decide yeah. putting a lot of work into that. And then I don't spend a lot of time monitoring the stock. With this value training sort of thing, you'd have to spend a lot of time thinking about the positions you already own. Sure. I mean, well, you think about like NACO, for example, if mm-hmm. you bought it where you bought it and then it runs up to 40 some odd dollars a share, yeah. maybe some person would have, and this is of course hindsight, right? But sold it off. And then when it now it's back down to thirties or wherever, I don't know where it is today. Well, I, yeah, I mentioned the, the blog post on Clark street value. Mm-hmm. Well, the author of that post mentioned that when it went up to 40 some dollars a share sold a it. lot of people sold it yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. sold it and some people had the idea of well if hbb goes up i'll sell that and buy more naco mm-hmm. if naco goes up i'll sell naco and buy more hbb and you know that, that might work that stock was obviously very volatile it went from about 32 dollars to 47 and then back down to 32 mm-hmm. so it senses you know move from there but so you had an opportunity obviously that's a you know huge uh, change in a matter of weeks do you think value trading has added a lot to make returns like yeah that? yeah yeah and that's a larger thing that talked about about where his returns might come from. And some people were saying, well, you know. Maybe he used his leverage or something like right. that. Right. And I think he's basically there is something where he said that he did use leverage. Um, I also, uh, with Berkshire, there's, I think that, that Berkshire might be a leverage position. But um, I don't know if that's true. The other thing that I mentioned is that he owns a, one of his top stocks is a heavily shorted stock. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if, if possibly. Is Yeah. So I don't know if you would make money. Um, off of that if you were lending it out to people mm-hmm. and i don't know if he does lend it out to people but i mean that that's possible obviously yeah do you think if you just put if you put together like an investor should put together a portfolio i mean you talk about omnicom and frost mm-hmm. those are companies that you know obviously pretty thoroughly and if, right. if so much to the point where you say okay if omnicom gets to one times price of sales it's probably a good buy and then you could sell it when it gets to 1.5 or whatever you said times absolutely price of sales. so do you think that individuals listening should sort of get build a portfolio of, the, of those types of companies and and, and if they wanted to, the, that's the way to do it, to value trade? Yeah, I especially think if you're spending less time than we are looking at stocks. Mm-hmm. So you won't know as many stocks, and it'll take a longer time for you to know them. I think it's good to only deal in the stocks, buying and selling them, that you know the companies really well. Yeah. The big danger, and, and Ben Graham said this um, before, and I've, I've mentioned it, because people are surprised by this when I say this is a value investor, is not paying too much for a stock. 
That's not the danger. It's owning the wrong company. Sure. So if you only own quality companies because you know them really well, companies that you know well, and that's all you deal in, then the value that you get can be, like we said, from doing this where you buy the cheapest and sell the most expensive. Mm -hmm. Because the, the greater danger is that you buy something because it's cheap, but you don't know it that well. Yeah, sure. So what you don't want to do is sell Omnicom and buy um, some other company that's a lot cheaper, but that you don't know as well as that industry or something, especially if it's, like I said, like that industry that you're buying into a totally new industry, that's always risky, you know. So sure. if you know that industry well, if you know Omnicom well, then always look for an opportunity you know cyclically when it's cheap to buy into it and then when it is a good point in the economy you know sell off some of it sure that makes sense to me mm -hmm. but when we're talking about this value trading we're talking about periods sometimes of years sure yeah it can vary like we talked about with NACO that could be a matter of weeks that you could sell in I was gonna say do you think spinoffs are a good place for value trading because that value gap could close quicker it could close because quicker, it's more sure. situational mm -hmm. I mean we talk about um I mean, I don't want to say, when we were talking about HBB, we, you were talking, we have mm -hmm. to love the business, okay? But right. we were also talking about a different situation, which we haven't publicly written about or, okay. or talked about on, on the blog. And you said, well, that's more of a situation type of, an, of investment is what, what you said. Okay. You know, so maybe in the situation, that's maybe more of a, you would probably trade that differently than you would trade a business that you know, like Omnicom or like Frost. Mm -hmm. Et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So there was a stock that we're talking about. I don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about, but um, I had said, you don't want to own this for a really long time necessarily because it's not going to outperform the market over 15 years or something because uh -huh. of the industry it's in. It's uh -huh. too cyclical an industry. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so buying it for a time and then selling it can be really attractive. Sure. But holding it for a really long time becomes a problem because there's a point in the cycle where it earns almost nothing. And that's going to happen because of the business it's in. Everyone will earn almost nothing at one point <laughs> in the cycle. Um, and so, you know, when you think about it, your, your really long-term return, we were talking about the stocks, the compound annual growth rate, is going to be a geometric return. It's not an arithmetic mean. Mm -hmm. And people can easily miscalculate that. So, um, and with cyclical companies, they always do. Uh, if you look, people always think that cyclical companies have long-term returns that are as good as non-cyclical companies. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, like, the Nifty 50 or something like that, if you find those companies that were actually cyclicals in there, there's not many, but there's a couple that have a cyclical element to them. Over the next 40 years, they didn't return anywhere near what Coca-Cola and Disney and these things that have no cyclicality to them at all did. Sure. And so those things are more attractive to trade quickly mm -hmm. if it's a very cyclical company because they tend, to, honestly, a cyclical industry, it's very hard for them ever to earn as good returns as a non-cyclical because if you put the series together, their geometric return is not going to be anywhere near the arithmetic return. And when people think they are doing the average you would calculate in Excel arithmetically, which mm -hmm. is not what you're going to get, just because recently it's been doing 15% a year, there's going to be years in there where it does two. Sure. That's going to throw everything off of yeah. your calculation. Yeah. I mean, that's why a lot of people talk about finding predictable businesses when mm -hmm. valuing them, right? Yeah. It makes a really big difference over decades. Mm -hmm. Now, most people don't own stocks for that long. But even if you're a value investor, having a stock that has that really high return over time, that compounding return, adds an element of safety to your long-term returns because if you get stuck in it, if the price doesn't rise quickly, the value is still compounding. And you see that a lot. So like, you know, say Omnicom or whatever, if they, if their sales grow a little bit each year and they buy back stock, the price to sales doesn't really have to expand that multiple sure. for you to make enough money to match the market, mm -hmm. right? And so that's much better than something that is a you know pile of cash that isn't growing. 
So that's always the issue that value investors have is how quickly do they realize that value? Sure. I mean, that's the value yeah. tra- gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, and it, and it was a great write up. And um, if you have no more thoughts, and we obviously thank very mm-hmm. David very much for yeah. writing that. It was, it, was, it was a great piece and I definitely enjoy reading it. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening to us today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you do want to get access, and we're, this was sort of an investing, I guess you could say, investing topic type of yeah. of, of podcast. If you mm-hmm. want to get access to an investing topic memo that Jeff sends out every Sunday morning, go to focuscompounding.com and on the homepage, you will see a place for you to enter in your email. And then every Sunday morning, you will receive a memo from Jeff on an investing topic. Mm-hmm. We want to thank everybody for listening to us today. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care.